loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Steve Grant. He's the founder and executive director of the Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation, dedicated to his two sons, who both died at different times of accidental overdose. The foundation has helped numerous organizations and created the Chris and Kelly's Hope Fitness Park, which was dedicated in 2014. Steve's book about that loss, Don't Forget Me, chronicles his journey from grief to gratitude. He's a four-time recipient of Northwestern Mutual Foundation National Community Service Award and the South Carolina Upstate Philanthropic Achievement Award. He also received the South Carolina Governor's Volunteer Award for Volunteer Community Leadership. He serves on both the Family Effect Board as well as the board of the Center for Drug and Alcohol Programs, Medical University of South Carolina, and he's a managing director for Mass Mutual in South Carolina, where he continues to coach and mentor young people. He and his wife, Kathy, reside in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Welcome, Steve. Have me, Cheryl. It's nice to have you. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always amazed because I do this every week. Uh, that um, you know, if I if I interview somebody who's had the types of loss I've had, I can well imagine that, right? But right. when I interviewed some view somebody that has had a loss I haven't had, I always have the thought I can't imagine that. And I guess I felt that in particular reading your book. Because uh, not only did you lose one of your children, you lost two of the same terrible cause. Um, so I hope I, I um, you know, I hope our listeners don't have to imagine that if they haven't experienced it. But I hope we can also share how you navigated through that and what came of it from you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm. Every so often over the last, the course of the last, well, 15 years and then 10 for Kelly, um, I, I will sometimes meet someone who's lost two children, but they have other children, fortunately. Um, mm-hmm. But there are those people, it's, it's rare, that have only lost both their kids to the same, uh, to the same thing. And Kelly and Christopher, you know, took a, two different routes to it, but um, that had the same outcome. And that's, that's uh, you know, I, I could almost compare it a little bit to how people feel when someone in their life has died of suicide. Uh, mm-hmm. There's this weight of uh, trying to navigate, um, I don't know, guilt, a sense of responsibility, all of that, which I feel your book handles well in the sense that you didn't, uh, you didn't get stuck there forever. No, I, I think I subtly did. Um, I, this part of that book where I talk about um, having a, having to uh, use alcohol to to uh, to calm me down and to uh, relieve me. It's a you know it's a good antidepressant, but it has terrible side effects. 
Mm. And I, 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 I don't, I never drank a lot, but at that time I was drinking a whole lot. After my first son died, I would be drinking alone in my house, and I think that was really my form of grief. Um, I didn't feel not I, uncommon. I yeah, not uncommon for people to just feel so staggered by pain. They just want to. They just want out of it somehow, which of course, ultimately, usually does not work. But um, yeah, you know, it's Cheryl, my mother. We lost my sister when I was nineteen to a car accident. She was eighteen, and my mother, who really never drank, started drinking at night when my father was asleep. And um, he'd leave early in the morning, and she'd get up later on. He never knew she was drinking for a period of time, and that's how she was doing it. So it was interesting that she chose that route to do, and her son chose that route to do for a period of time. You know what? I've, I, I feel we've kind of skipped ahead. I was going to get to that later, but here we are, that even <laughs> though your, um, your sons both died of addiction, even though... Uh, not of alcohol, but of other substances, right. even though your mother, uh, you know, had to go through that, even though you witnessed that with her, that does not um, Im immunize you, does it? Oh, absolutely in not. Fact, absolutely in fact, not. I, I almost think, thinking of your, your first son dying and then your second son going towards uh, addictive behavior as well, I, I almost think it is a little like suicide that it makes it possible, right? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, absolutely. You absolutely. know, it almost it almost favors it a little more. Do you think? Yeah, it does. You know, with me again, it was very, it was very subtle. Uh, the the process that I went through because um, I kind of said to my other son, "Hey, you know, I, Chris is gone. Uh, we're going to get back to work tomorrow. You're going to go back to Birmingham Southern." Uh, get going, you know, and I and later on it, that came back to haunt me, of course. Um, and that's just the kind of person I am. Um, we're going to get back on the horse. I was working and everything, but meanwhile, I got home and, you know, I was going in the toilet um, slowly but surely. I don't like to make, uh, you know, definitive statements about the differences in grief for men and women, but subjectively having interviewed both men and women over a long period of time i think there's a higher likelihood that men like kind of go to let's stay busy let's do something kind of kind of um coping strategy which uh has something to recommend it but also a downside if you don't make enough room for the other parts of that's grieving. right I, I i agree with you i think that that's probably very true so I want to talk a little bit about your sons, because one thing that sure. I appreciated in your book is that uh, they were very much alive in the book, not just as young people who, who died of their addictions, but as young people mm -hmm. and uh, as the individuals that they were. And of course, we don't, we don't lose statistics. We don't lose uh, generalities. <laughs> you know, we lose right. uh, specific people. So could you talk some about um, the two of them and and what what they were for you before all of that? Uh, they were, you know, it's funny. Um, I, uh, Cheryl, I dream about my kids all the time, and I always dream, and they're always young. They're never older uh, when the trouble came, and it's really interesting that that happens. Never, they're never older, and. I guess to answer your question, they 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 were uh, they were very very great kids. 
Uh, Christopher was different, obviously. He, he kind of struggled a little bit in different areas, but he was a very, very fine athlete. Uh, he struggled academically, though, and uh, Kelly was better academically and was unathletic, but he tried real hard at it. <laughs> And, uh, Just, I know and that you, co- I know that you coached them and all that. He must have felt I a significant him, yeah, pressure to be good at it, right? <laughs> yeah, I coached him and everything, but I was very, I was very objective, uh, and and uh, I think that's why parents appreciated it. Uh, that you know, there's no favoritism towards my children, uh, but but they tried very hard, and and uh, you know they they uh, you know Kelly Kelly went on to uh, uh, go to a Catholic high school. Uh, here in town, and and Christopher went on to a, an Episcopal school, which he private school, which he was in since the kindergarten, and um, you know up, up until uh, for Christopher up until the age of twelve, thirteen, you know he he had things going in the right direction. It seemed like, uh, and, it, and you know he always struggled academically though. But in Kelly was just a very uh, model kid. Uh, everybody would say that. Everybody was shocked when when Kelly passed away. And and that would make some sense, you know. Uh, it, it I guess I would say that um, the squeaky wheel sometimes gets the oil in families. Uh, and I many th- times. I think you I think you talk about that in your book that um, the role left for Kelly was to do well, right? Yep. Uh, you know, to to not be trouble. Uh, even my own yep. brother, I was I was a rebellious teenager, and he still talks. I'm. I'm 66 at this point. He's 63. He still talks about feeling the pressure to be a good kid. <laughs> yeah. Because because I was rebellious. We both came out of it okay. But, you know, there is kind of that what the younger kid thinks they're supposed to do about it, which is, of course, nothing, right? It's not their right. job. But, That's right. Uh, but there's, right. there's really that and subtle got, pressure. And I get lulled to sleep as a parent because I was a very good child. And my parents would even say that they were sitting here. I was a very good child. I had a twin brother who was a very good child, and and um, and I've always felt like that I should be behave that way all my life. Uh, and I was more of a protector because then I had a younger sister and a younger brother also. Uh, but uh, you know, it surprised me. Chris and Kelly were actually very close friends, and I never realized that. I never realized mm-hmm. until Christopher mm-hmm. died how close they were. That makes sense too to me, um, you know that that I have two grandsons. They're about that same uh, age gap, and they're playmates for sure. The two years is a difference, but it doesn't prevent them from being quite close and being buddies. Uh, so yeah, well, they that. had two. They had very different interests, especially when Christopher started going. You know, the the drugs and the alcohol started taking over his life at 14 years old. Uh, I don't think he had much to do with Kelly at that point, but it was really interesting after Christopher died that Kelly um, Kelly took it very hard, and I just didn't realize the, 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 the bond there. And I, and I guess my brother lives 800 miles from me. He's my twin brother, and there's a bond there, certainly, but because of the because of um, the, the 800 miles, we don't uh, see each other as much as we probably would like to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was very strong. Do you feel that would have been influenced by, you know, you had a pretty early loss. Your sister died in an accident when you were 18. Is that right? That's right. And um, I know that when people that I've talked with who 
had a loss like that in college, late high school or college, there's such a compelling drive to move forward, especially if you're that sort of person. Um, and I wonder whether how grief was for you about her, uh, because how that was might have influenced what you expected when Christopher died of Kelly. I, I don't know. But is there any connection well, to be made yeah, well, there? That, her, her death happened in the summer in um, New Jersey, on the New Jersey Turnpike. And uh, I was home from, uh, I went to school at Furman University in South Carolina, in Greenville. And so I was home for the summer. And when she passed away, uh, I, I remember driving down, taking my parents to, you know, to identify her. And mm. um, and I remember driving back and them in the back seat of the car, they left the front seat empty and the back seat, and they were just crying to each, with each other. And I never kind of, I never, it never really hit me um, uh, until the day after she was buried. Then I kind of cried for a couple hours, uh, and then I went back to school. And uh, so and that's that that is kind of what you expected would happen with your son, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure you cared about your sister, but it was your parents' grief, and you just went back to school. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, and I, I can imagine that that might have come up for you when your sons then died, that earlier experience, because they they live oh, yeah. in the same place yeah. <laughs> and, for and, sure. And, you know, my and my parents were still alive, and and of course that that's a that was a, just a tremendous blow to my parents because uh, they had moved down here. Then they were an hour away because their grandchildren were here. Their first grandchildren were here. Mm. Then all of a sudden they're gone over a period of five years, and uh, they re- it really, it really. Um, I, if I if I feel bad for anyone other than myself and my ex-wife, um, I, it's my parents. Yeah, I um, I haven't had too many opportunities to interview grandparents who have lost grandchildren but just being a grandparent uh i i i could imagine just being ripped to shreds by that um yeah you you know there's there's so much there's so much open heart that goes (laughs) goes in that track for sure yeah well, they were very close with Christopher. I think you read since you read the book after his first rehab, he had to really kind of be away from Greenville. So we we asked my mother and father to take him in, in an hour away in Abbeville, South Carolina, and that was a very interesting uh, experience. Um, and, and obviously, it was not very fair for me to ask my parents to do that. But knowing my parents, there, I knew they were going to say yes. I would do the same thing. It was if I was in their situation. So I kind of knew yeah, that. and I but, I don't know about fair or not. I mean, I I imagine they would they would have wanted as you to do whatever they could. But that brings us to something that seemed um, very very important in reading the book, which is that one of the things that you had to come to in order to find some healing, and I'm not saying end of grief, <laughs> just saying healing, right. um, was to really absorb the statement that you have influence but not control yeah that that you could do whatever it came into your mind to do to be helpful but that you couldn't prevent it yeah you know there was an expectation in my mind that I had done everything for Kelly for Christopher 
everything I could, you know, five rehabs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, a boarding school for a couple of years. It was really a very trying period and very expensive period. But I, I knew that we left it all on the field for him. And I knew when he got home and he started using again after that last rehab that, and then ultimately dying in his bedroom, I knew that I knew that he was it was he was able to he was capable of dying. I mean, I, it wasn't I was prepared. You you, you um, took it but, in but that that was a possibility. It, it, it was I wasn't surprised about it. Um, yes. You know because I and I didn't. And I guess the reason I wasn't grieving as much is because I was really grieving because I I thought it might happen. It's almost like Alzheimer's, right? You you've lost the person yeah. a piece at a time. You yeah. Um, yeah. You had a longer course. Uh, with him, and it was much more hopeless over time. And one thing that just seems worth emphasizing, too, is that um, he had some, you know, ADHD, some characteristics mm-hmm. of ADHD. Uh, I have a friend whose son became addicted at one point. I think he was self-medicating. Uh, he's He's fortunately, after a lot of trial and travail, come through it, right? But but a big part of that had to do with recognizing that there was something that needed to be treated, right? Right. That that he couldn't focus. He he was all jumbled up inside. Um, There were things he was trying to cope with by using the substances. Oh, that, I realized that, that even though he was a six-foot, only freshman on the basketball team, only freshman on the soccer team, beautiful boy, and had everything from outward appearance, and you know, had a lot of friends, but he couldn't be in social settings without being a little hammered. Um, mm-hmm. So he had to drink, and I finally realized that he, he really suffered from very low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, you know, he just looked in the mirror, as I tell people, and he saw someone different, I think. Social anxiety, you know, and it's really hard to tell when uh, when people start using so so young as he did. Unlike your other son, it's very hard to tell: uh, is this the person, or is it the substance? You can't, you can't, you'd never be able to tell. That's right. That's right. When I realized it was controlling his life, uh, that that was hard to assess, actually. Uh, until you know a, a physician really kind of diagnosed him with that, um, and but the, um, I think I go in the book how, how you know how I kind of came to the conclusion that Krischer had something wrong with him and there was a problem going on. It's it's um, I was I was reviewing and maybe we can talk about this more in terms of you know how how people out there in our listening off audience uh, assess these things i i raised three teenagers two of them were pretty straight and narrow kids one got into um slightly more than normal teenage trouble mm-hmm. and and it would have been very hard to detect if she was in trouble or just being a teenager you know what I'm saying? Right. So oh, yeah. when we get yeah. back, I, I, I'd really like to talk about, this would be hindsight for you, um, how you came to differentiate those two things, because I think that is very confusing. Let's, very let's come back. Because every parent, and very important. they call me, they go. Yep, exactly. So listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to 
like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, find a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find my guest, you can go to chriskellyhope.org. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Steve Grant about the loss of his two sons to accidental overdoses five years apart and how grief led him to create a foundation to support other families dealing with addiction. And before the break, Steve, we were talking about how almost impossible, but certainly very difficult it is to differentiate a kind of normal teenage behavior um, a little out of the box, you know, a little rebellious, whatever, from kids in trouble. And I imagine that you have some insight into that. Could you um, could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I've experienced a lot of that since they've died, too, because uh, parents call me uh, wondering, is this normal? Is this, what is this behavior? And just talk about Chris for a little bit. Um, I was sitting in my den one night, and he came downstairs, and he said, Dad, I don't want to be a, you know what, an F-up, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and said the word. And I said, well, why do you think you're an F-up? And he said, I just am. I don't want to be one. And he was he was telling me something, but I couldn't understand it. Um and then about two weeks later, he came down and said, Dad, you're my only friend in this world. Now, that I, that, I started the suicide crisis hotline in Greenville 30 years ago, and I knew that there was something there he was saying. He was crying for help, and I'm his best friend so, at 14. 
I was so you that 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 set your alarm off there. Oh yeah, that that, that yeah. set my alarm off. I called I called the pediatrician friend of mine that night, and they had me in a psychiatrist's office the next day. On the psychiatrist was nice enough to bring me in on his lunch. And he came out and he said, uh, your son's, I can't tell you a whole lot just because it's between he and I, but your son's life is being controlled by alcohol and marijuana. Right? And he said he's making every decision. And, and I, that's the distinguishing thing I tell parents, you know, when they, when because the behavior of someone, let's just let's talk about Christopher, because Kelly was very different, but Christopher was sort of, every, when everybody reads this book and they have a son like Chris, they had a son or daughter, they all say to me, Boy, that, you, you're just talking about my son when you explain what Christopher was like. And it is amazing that the behavior is very similar. Um, mm. I mean, it's all unique to your family, but it's, it's, it's the behavior and the things they do when it comes to, you know, misbehaving, lying, deceit, uh, you know, being deceiving, uh, all the things that go into all this, uh, it's, it's very characteristic of when you're being controlled by drugs and alcohol. That's interesting, the lying part, because, of course, I remember being a teenager and not telling the absolute truth. <laughs> I'll just right. admit, admit it on there. It's funny how hard that was just to do. My parents are both dead, but, <laughs> you yeah. know, I think they knew I didn't tell the absolute truth. But uh, that's different than sort of um, pathologically lying. I was I was trying to, you know, get away with things, but... It, it, uh, no, I it was the opposite. As if... I, I told my parents things they really didn't want to hear. Want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know that that was, like, was a preferable. Was like <laughs> and you know, Christopher was like that too, Cheryl. He would tell me he was. We were best friends, and he would tell me things that you know. I said, "Oh Lord, you know, I, I really don't want to know that." You know. Um, mm-hmm. But it would be funny because we'd be sitting at the dinner table, and he would say things like, "Dad, have you ever drank bourbon?" Or, Dad, have you ever drank um, Southern Comfort? And you know what he was saying? He was asking me because he had drank it. Because he had. Oh, he was talking he in code. He didn't tell me that, but that's what he was saying. Yes. He, kind so of talking in code. But, but it was in his way. But then the problem is, uh, uh, at least as I, you know, as you say, very different stories with your two sons because... By the time it was clear that your younger son had an addiction problem, he was definitely an adult, which yes, he is a whole different yeah. uh, a whole different set of 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 difficulties, right? Um, but right. with him, uh, it, you know, he's giving you this information. Well, then, what do you do next with that information? You did what you knew to do, which was to. Um, you know, get a psychiatrist involved, and then to uh, try several treatment programs, all of which you vetted. Your, you know, your right. You do your research, um, but in the end, what do you do when a kid insists on going in that direction and does not, yeah. you know, doesn't turn it around? Yeah, every you know it worked for a little while each one of these rehabs, but it was always sort of short lived. And he, you know, he, um, uh, you know, you plan for relapse, especially with a uh, an adolescent. And you know, drugs and alcohol rob you of your adolescence. Um, and and you know, when you start at fourteen years old, you know, people that become adults, 
Christopher would have had a very difficult time as an adult also, I believe, um, if he would have if he would have stayed alive. Um, you know, because I think the, the ones that it's just proven that people that start in their early teens, I always ask parents, what, what do you think your son or daughter's age of first use was? Um, Are you t- asking? Oh, uh, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, the yeah, earlier, the harder it is. Use was, and they say, you know, if they say 14 or 15, I, and they, the, the son or daughter is 23, 24, and they have a problem, they have, they probably have a pretty good problem. You know, I'm remembering, I have a lot of friends that there was this period of time where a lot of people around me were going into 12-step. And yep. uh, the common wisdom was um, whenever you start started uh, drinking, in this case it was mostly Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you basically stopped developing at that age in, in emotional yep. ways. And so... What would seem hard to me about, let's say you start at 13 and then you quit at 24, you have all that growing up to do that your peers have already done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it must be very isolating. Died. When Christopher died at 21, I would probably say emotionally he was 16. You know, so maturity-wise, that- he, was, he was, you know, significantly younger than the, than the age he died at. That makes sense to me because yeah. uh, it kind of blunts blunts us emotionally to be using at that level. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Kelly started you know being addicted for to heroin for eight months. Um, you know, starting at twenty four years old, uh, after being introduced to it, um, and down in Charleston, he you know he just he fell in love with it, and it was um, it was just a completely different thing. Uh, and he wanted to. He wanted to stop. Um, you know, I'm convinced of that. Um, everybody's convinced of it, uh, just by the, what happened towards the end of his life. Uh, but it was very, just very different. Very different. And and um, I I I always find it mysterious, and I'm thinking about it right now, that we can we can watch things as sort of circles around to something we started talking about at the beginning. We can watch things happen. And, you know, does it lead us to say, never me? Or does it lead us to say, that's an option? <laughs> you know, you could imagine, and maybe maybe there was some of both. Maybe it was a never me at first, and then a that's an option later. Oh, I don't know. We found, when that psychiatrist told us what, his, what was going on in Christopher's life, and we actually, in the book, I, I know you saw it, there's a report the psychiatrist wrote, his notes. I kept everything. And, and, uh, and, and um, you know, it was, it was I, I started moving, and, you know, when, when that happened. And I, read, I was reading things. I was looking at rehabs. Um, but, but I read about how uh, your family would get destroyed. Your marriage would go in the tubes. You go bankrupt. Um, all these things. And I said, this is not happening to me. I'm not, this is not going to happen to me, you know. Mm-hmm. We're going to nip this in the bud. Uh, that was just <laughs> uh-huh. my attitude. Uh, we're going to knock this out in 28 as a, days. As a take you know? charge guy, right? <laughs> yeah, well, as you a, know. I, I can, I can take care of this. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I just said we're going to have 20, you know, it's gonna, he's going to go to a 28-day program, and we're going we're gonna to knock this thing out, you know. And in retrospect, obviously, I always tell people one of the, you know, one of the few really regrets I have is I didn't send him away earlier to a longer program a much longer program because he really needed to be rewired 
mm. so to speak. I'm also aware, uh, you know, there's there's such a big income divide uh, because we don't have accessible treatment that that isn't expensive, right? Right. Um, but even if we assume, like in your case, you had, uh, it, it stretched you to the max, but you had the financial resources, right? But still, it it, yeah. it, but still, it didn't, it didn't tell you what is really going to be effective for my kid. No. It didn't mm -hmm. tell you that. Uh, right. That is very hard to, I've, I've, uh, you know, had clients who are looking for programs for their kids and and such um and it's just incredibly difficult to it is and there's people the there, there the are kid. now organizations out there that at least in my town and there are around the country where they're 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 doing things where they are making a better assessment of this uh, of this uh, and they're doing different spectrums of addiction but and working with adolescents and young adults, and they are making, they're doing a much better job of that. And I know what you're saying. If somebody would have, it's like an educational consultant talking to somebody about where they're going to go to college. Which, absolutely. You know, if, I have, if I could have sat down with someone who was an addictionologist consultant or whatever, you know, where would you send Christopher, right? But I was doing it as a parent myself. And, you know, I was throwing caution to the wind. Right. And, and what I know about those those programs is some are incredibly uh, wonderful and others are not, <laughs> you know. But you can't tell yeah, by the and, way it looks. And, you can't and, and, tell and, by the brochure. You can't tell from what by what it costs either. I know some absolutely not that are, that are run by not for profits that you you can get in for a very very minimal amount of money and stay as long as you want and they're excellent. Now and then I know some very very nice ones where you know you're on you know you're on the shores of uh, some beach in California, um, you know for six months, and you know they come out and you know they start using in 30 days, again. Right, so, because you know, the the yeah, hard work hasn't difficult. happened, the emotional work hasn't happened. Is that your theory yeah. about why that happens? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and you know you you get and I think. The counselors at these rehab facilities, they're, they're not, they're all, everybody's always in recovery. These guys, these guys and these gals are typically people that are also in recovery uh, themselves. And so they know the emotional part of this thing and the physical attraction of it. But mm -hmm. they do want to, you know, they want to be as positive as they can with parents, um, you know, to, to say, you know, I think Christopher's doing well, you know. And I really went down that path, the first program we went to in Tennessee, and he was there for 90 days, uh, and and they, you know, we'd go and they tell us he's doing great, you know, and 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 I guess he was, um, at least to, you know, uh, to their expectation. But I just never thought about. They said to plan for relapse, but I just never really gave it much thought. Well, it's it can be really mind bending because for one thing, if if the mind of an addict is saying, "Get me out of here so I can get some drugs." One way to do that is comply, isn't right. it? <laughs> you know, do exactly what everyone says and get out as quick as possible. <laughs> you know, yeah, you read the book and, you know, I, the, 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 you also talked about a board that I'm on at the University of the Medical School of South Carolina in Charleston, the uh, Center for Drug and Alcohol Programs. 
you know, they talk about the adolescent brain, and, and the longer you're in rehab, that actually your brain changes. And we, I could see it in the letters that Chris was writing me, which I put a couple in the book, where, you know, the first letter I got from him in rehab it was, you, you sent me here with a bunch of blah, 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 intravenous drug users, rednecks. Um, I just do a little weed. You know, and that actually that was going to be the name of the book. Uh, one of the names was I Just Do a Little Weed. <laughs> that would have been a good today, title, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And but it would have been very appropriate today because we're all debating whether or not marijuana is a gateway drug. And I do address that a little bit. It was for Christopher. It was for Christopher. But for the majority of people, it's not. Well, and just like... It has other, it has other effects. Just like many people uh, drink normally. Correct. Right? And uh, some people are alcoholics. I think it's yep. probably quite similar in that way. Uh, oh, I, we may have think, we may I have better stats bit. on that in a in a few years now that at least where I live, um, marijuana is pretty much legalized, and right. so that that's going <laughs> to lead to a lot more open information, I would imagine, which I think is. Probably a good thing. Well, they, you know, they, the Denver Denver's the first experiment, and you know, they they talk about it. emergency room visits are up dramatically, uh, car accidents are up dramatically, those kind of things, and it's, it, they haven't figured out a way yet to obviously test for marijuana like they can on a breathalyzer in a, in, for alcohol. But they, they and also, eventually. I don't I don't think that that there's been enough um, information put out about there was a, a recent very bad accident uh, near where I live um, where someone, uh, you know, a full-on adult had had some weed and hit two people on the, on the street. And one of the things he said, I mean, he, he was remorseful hugely. Uh, I didn't know that marijuana impairs driving. Yeah. You know, people feel like, oh, okay, I'm not going to drink and drive, so I'll have a joint. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. the education is very lacking. It's not that um, it, it it still has to be uh, managed safely. Any any mind altering substance needs to be, but I don't That's think right. that that info is out there um, as well as it needs to be. No, and I, there, there's a lot of groups out there trying to trying to get it out, though. And I, South Carolina, I think we'll go down kicking and screaming, but I, I think that's it's just inevitable. One, you know, one of the big things you're facing is the the economics of the of marijuana. It's just tremendous, and that's the, that's a big influencer. It, uh, you mean that people are making money selling it and that kind of thing? Is that yeah, what you're talking the, about? The economy it will bring, uh, and it's you know, it, it's, yes. it's a it's a billion, several billion dollar business one day. Uh, yes, but of course, um, less uh, actually overall less money made when it's legal, <laughs> right? And more taxes yeah. paid when it's legal, right? Yeah. Let's come yeah. back to that. Uh, we have a break now, and then we'll we'll come okay. back to that after the break. For our second break, listeners, you can find me at weatherandgrief.com, the Good Grief Host page, and you can find Steve Grant at chriskellyhope.org. Back soon.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Steve Grant uh, about his sons, Chris and Kelly, um, their deaths from uh, addiction. And uh, so we've been talking generally about them, about addiction, about grief, and about what, what has come out of it uh, for, for Steve in his life. Um, so we were talking before about how imponderable it is, what the effect's going to be of you know, more legalized access to marijuana. And I guess one thing it eliminates is the the forbidden fruit aspect, which for teenagers can be pretty mighty. <laughs> but right, right. on the other hand, that may be, um, the benefit of that may be diminished by having it so available. What's your thought mm-hmm. on it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really, I haven't given it that much thought uh, about it. Um, I really haven't. I try to stay away from uh, th- those um, things that are a little, somewhat controversial. Uh, <laughs> I, do that. I, do that, I do that pretty much on every front. Uh, yeah. So people do well, ask me all the time, hey, Steve, can you come speak to the legislature, state legislature about marijuana? Can you come speak about this? And I say, no, I don't get involved in that. I, I speak a no. lot, but I don't speak to those kind of groups. You know, I'm, um, I'm thinking in this, in this direction about it, not, not about your opinion, but about the okay. impact of these, these changes. For instance, here would be an example. Uh, the illness my wife died of is now something people live a lot longer than she did uh, with it. Right. Right. Uh, 
Right. And so when I hear about advancements or changes, it affects me emotionally. Yeah. And, and given that, um, maybe not for Kelly, but for Chris, you do think that um, getting involved with mind-altering substances so young did favor the outcome in a way, did, did favor him kind of then doing other things that were more dangerous and this and that. Yep. I imagine that that's an emotional thing for you. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, when the, when the kindergarten teacher said, we you think we need to leave Christopher back a year and because um, he's, he's older and, he, you know, he's also bigger, um, but he's also very active. And I also think he should be on some Ritalin. And, you know, when you hear that, I go, oh, you know, what's going on? We're already hearing our son's a failure, right? Mm. And uh, he gets on Ritalin, and then uh, he gets on Adderall, and then he gets on this and this and this. And over time, Christopher, and I comment in the book that, you know, he became a pharmacist. I mean, he knew what he wanted. And Uh, he got conditioned that he got an expert. There was something out there for him that that a pill solved the problem, uh, or or a drug solved the problem, and um, that's he was conditioned for that. That's interesting. You know, there are there are advancements. Uh, I found out uh, about a year after Kelly died, maybe six months. I met an addictionologist from Washington D.C. who came down to Greenville, and he told me about a drug that he was surprised Kelly wasn't taking, and I had never heard of it. I had never heard of it, and I was very disappointed in, in, his, in his advisor, you know, medical advisors, our medical advisors, that this would not have come up because Kelly would have used that. Kelly would have used that drug. Um, that I, that I know. So, you know, I, I was disappointed. Maybe that's an example of what, you know, an advancement uh, right. I wasn't aware of um, that people are right. using now fairly regularly. And I think you've. I think that highlights a, a, a st- another problem in some way, which is that, uh, for instance, in my field, I'm a mental health can- counselor, but I've mm-hmm. I've had a lot of learning and experience with addiction. But I find yeah. that when I meet other counselors, many of them have not. And uh, so, th- if someone comes to them with an addiction problem they treat it psychologically, which is not sufficient. And so, you know, that would be an example. They, they don't, they are not informed, you know, about uh, much of anything when it comes to addiction. And they're thinking the addiction is the symptom. And often the addiction is the problem uh, from my point of view. You're absolutely right. Uh, I was going to earlier say, I I, I, I volunteered over the last 30 years and of several mental health organizations that were specifically mental health, and when when uh, when pe- parents call me, that's somewhat somewhat the confusion. Uh, they don't know if this is depression or if this is addiction, um, or both. Interesting, and it, or both, or both, and it probably and most people it has to be both. I have, I you know, Christopher was was probably bipolar, um, you know, maybe undiagnosed bipolar. Um, Kelly definitely was. He was on an antidepressant. Um, so I, I think there's a touch of of, men, of mental illness. Um, you know, the the mantra of my foundation is we want to support adolescents who and young adults who struggle with substance abuse, addiction, and mental health. Well, um, and then uh, what I'm aware of too is 
typically you actually can't tell unless a person's clean and sober whether there's a mental health diagnosis. But people get diagnosed with stuff, you know, while they're using and it follows them around. You know, it's very complex in that way uh, because I've known people who who found sobriety and their mental health problems and their relational problems and all that really kind of left them. Uh, But other people that, you know, they started using because of a mental health problem. So it's very individual and unique, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm on, I was on a board for 25 years with what is called a clubhouse model here in Greenville called the gateway house. And interesting thing these people are they are definitely diagnosed with a, a mental illness, um, whether it's bipolar disorder. Um, it's it, they definitely have a chronic mental illness, and very few of them drink. None of them drink really. Mm-hmm. Um, the parties are always a lot of fun. There's a hundred of them every year, Christmas party. You know, no nobody drinks alcohol. It's funny they don't they don't do that because uh, they know they can't. They can't, they can't uh. mix the medicine with that. And, and these are these are mostly adults, uh, yes, and some yeah. young adults. But but you, you don't you just don't see that happening there. But I think yeah. when you're younger um, and an adolescent, you, there's some confusion certainly. And when you're in pain and you think that that means there's something, you know, shameful about you, <laughs> you're yeah. gonna just do whatever takes away that pain. You know, before I let yeah. you get away today, I really want to talk about your uh, what came out of this for you. Obviously, we've mentioned some of that being on boards, talking to families, making making yourself a resource. But I know that your uh, your nonprofit, Chris Chris Kelly Hope, uh, has given you know money and support to many, many organizations that um, that are trying to make a difference in young people ending up where your sons did. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about and and the, about the work you do? Yeah, you know, after Kelly died, um, two weeks after he died, I went to a, a like a boot camp. It was a sales boot camp, and I had no real desire to go. It was a couple of weeks into January of 2011, and these two guys from St. Louis who are today very nationally known, they came to our uh, Greenville, and they spoke about, I thought they were going to speak about how to be better business people, you know, and how to sell more, but they they talked about the Lord, and they talked about, they talked about, um, what is going to be your legacy when you leave this life? And I kind of perked up, but I had no idea about it. I was always very helpful, but after Kelly died, you know, I was wondering where everything was going to go. And uh, the last thing I was thinking about was helping somebody. So they asked me, well, they wanted you to tell them on the first day what your legacy will be, and then on the last day, see if it's changed. So the first day, I had to get up and say, I want my legacy to be, and I don't know why I said this, but I did. Um, I want my legacy to be that I did everything I could to help young adults and adolescents who struggle with mental illness, uh, substance abuse, and addiction. You know, and they said they didn't know me, and they said, "Why would you say? Why would you want to do that, Steve?" And I said, "Well, I've lost both my two children in the last five years with accidental drug overdose, my only two kids." And of course, that kind of shocked the whole group because nobody really knew me in the group, and there must have been fifty to seventy-five people in this room, mm. and uh, that were talking about their legacy in life. So I kind of dropped the gauntlet there. 
And um, I started Chris and Kelly's Hope uh, through the Community Foundation of Greenville with Bob Morris. And uh, we, we, um, you know, we set a course uh, that I was going to, and I, I do very, I do it very um, part time. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, my wife thinks it's a full time job. Kathy thinks it is. But <laughs> you have two full time jobs, job. huh? <laughs> yeah, and we've we've raised several hundred thousand dollars over the last six or seven years, and we what comes in goes out, and because there's always these constant needs, and and we kind of address, unlike other people, where they kind of specifically maybe maybe target uh, young education or the science of addiction or aftercare or rehab facilities, we kind of touch on that touch on all of them and that's why we've given to about 125 organizations throughout the country and uh then we give some, we give to some organizations also that promote um to promote healthy afternoons for kids when they get home from school like junior achievement um or or some kind of athletic association or um a church program um we have to they have to be not for profits for us to give them money um but uh, you know uh, we don't turn away a lot of a lot of a lot of requests. You know, uh, uh, on that note, uh, my the child I was talking about of mine, who was a little more out of the box as a teenager, her involvement with with um, a theater company that was very healing oriented. They wrote their own pieces and performed them and all that. It saved her life. I you know or made her life so much better, led to everything she does now. So that's profoundly meaningful stuff to do, you know, to, uh, to have a passion and a direction. Uh, you know, people always say, how do you do this, Steve? You know, how do you get up in front of a group and talk about this? Or how do you, and I always say, and my wife always says, Steve, you must get a little depressed for this. Now, again, Kathy's not their parents, wasn't their parents, never, never met them. Okay, but she feels like she's got two kids. Uh, she must feel know, like she, she knows them. <laughs> yeah, she, she certainly yeah. should, and she does. But but people always say this, and I and I always say, you know, when I'm finished talking to a group, I'm invigorated, you know, because I know that I've helped somebody in this audience uh, with this. I've touched somebody, no matter what kind well, of group it is I'm speaking to. That's right. I mean, as human beings. We do better, I believe, in grief if we make something out of it. If if absolutely. there's some service we offer at the at the end of it, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there's some, you know, it, it, not everybody does what I do, certainly, or what I've done. Um, and it, and that, that, that's probably more because that's my personality. Um, and um, you know, I I really believe I, this was the plan, and um, and and I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, so. Um, and the other thing people, is, they just, they, I have a lot of people call me and say they want to do it, you know, and they, they, the son or daughter might have died a month ago. And I said, look, you need to, you know, you better take a little time. Absolutely. You better take a little time out on this, you know. Ab- absolutely. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think similar to you, it feels very redeeming to do something that serves other people that comes from how difficult the difficult things in my own life. Uh, I already lived, you and I already lived through the worst, right? Yep. (laughs) Uh, Just talking about it is definitely not what the original experience was, and it can be very uh, heartening. And on that note, say goodbye to you for the day, but I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. 
Well, thanks for having me, Cheryl. It was, it was a great pleasure to be to be asked to do this. You're so welcome. And again, uh, let me send people to the chriskellyhope.org website uh, to find more about you and to find your book. Next week, I'll have Christian de la Huerta, an expert in breath work and the author of Coming Out Spiritually. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. 